Hello, and welcome to Badger Talks Podcast, the podcast that shares interviews with experts from the University of Wisconsin-Madison community about their work, research, and a little bit about what they're like as people, too. I'm your host, Buzz Kemper. Today, we're focusing on the recent history of war crimes, specifically as regards the Russian-Ukraine war, and I'm happy to have as my guest Dr. Francine Hirsch. Francine Hirsch is Vilas Distinguished Achievement Professor of History at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, where she teaches courses on Soviet history, modern European history, and the history of human rights. Dr. Francine Hirsch, uh, Fran, thank you so much for being on the show today. This is such an important topic, and we have this, not only the history of war crimes and crimes against humanity, but we have these modern-day examples, unfortunately, in the Russian war against Ukraine. And I'd like to just start with an overview of what is the situation there in terms of the war crimes and crimes against humanity uh, that we are aware of at this point. Yeah, so in, in the 14 or so months since Russia invaded Ukraine, We've seen uh, war crimes, crimes against humanity, um, and we're also talking about um, the war, uh, Russia committing a war of aggression, or what used to be talked about as crimes against peace, and, and also genocide. And I think it's important to talk about all of this, really, when we think about what's happening. Um, we're talking, we're seeing um, kidnappings, mass rapes, we're seeing um, the targeting of civilians, the targeting of civilian apartment buildings. We're seeing the targeting of Ukrainian culture. We're seeing really just an all-out effort, um, I think, on the part of, of Putin and those in his circle to wipe out the Ukrainian nationality. And so that's why I think it really is appropriate to talk about a genocide that's happening at this mm. moment. Sometimes we talk about, you know, uh, the bad apples, you know, kind of syndrome. Um, the way you're describing this, it seems to me that it's more systemic. Is that is that a fair statement um, that these aren't just a few Russian soldiers who've gone off off the grid and are ignoring the rules? But does it seem to be a systemic thing directed from the top? So there's extensive evidence that's being collected right now. And, and that's one of the things that's really remarkable, um, different from earlier wars. I'm a historian who's written about the Second World War. And, and right now, because of technology, the way that the evidence is being compiled and collected, it's almost in real time um, in terms of being able to trace what's happening and, and the conversations that soldiers are having when they call back home. So the, the evidence of war crimes and the evidence evidence of intention, there's so much of it that it's that's one of the challenges of, of how to deal with this. And there are a number of international organizations that are involved right now in collecting this evidence and going through it. In terms of war crimes, um, right now the Ukrainian Prosecutor General's Office has collected evidence um, to initiate cases. I think right now, I think the number is, that the last time I checked was about against like 90,000 cases of war crimes. Oh my. Wow. Yeah, and is and is starting to try cases right now in Ukraine of war crimes, and these are crimes committed by by Russian soldiers. Mm. At the same time, the International Criminal Court has also opened an investigation into Russian war crimes and crimes against humanity and genocide, 
And at the same time, there have been extensive conversations among all kinds of international organizations, among different governments. The European Union has been involved. The U.S. State Department has been involved about an effort to try Russia's leaders, um, not just for the crimes committed in the course of the war, but for the crime of committing an illegal war in the first place, the, for committing a war of aggression. And so, again, I think it's important to talk about the war crimes and the crimes against humanity, but at the same time, it's very important to talk about genocide and to talk about the war of aggression because as as you've put it quite rightly this is not just a matter of isolated cases of war crimes we're seeing something that's very systemic that is about a, a war that was launched illegally um, and crimes that seem to be organized right, right from the very top. And, and that's, of course, what ultimately a, a court of law will evaluate and, and decide exactly who's involved. And, and some of that will come later, but it's, it's absolutely essential right now that this evidence be collected and that um, these initiatives be un underway to, to eventually make sense of, of this whole thing, to get the full picture. Is there... A difference in in your view, if you if you have an opinion on this, when we're dealing with war crimes, uh, let's say that we were d dealing with war crimes committed by a country that had uh, a legitimately democratically elected leader, as opposed to someone like Putin, who appears, you know, he, he wants the appearance of being a democratically elected leader, but he's essentially a dictator. And is there a difference in either the procedure or the difficulty in prosecuting war crimes when the leadership is of this type? So I, I'm curious, what was in terms of prosecuting war crimes against the leader, or prosecuting war crimes against soldiers? Right. Oh, yeah. Against leadership, the country yeah. itself. I think. I mean, no matter what, right? It, it's when a country is at war. I mean, in, in most cases, when we think about World War II and the Nuremberg trials, it was only after the Allied victory that we had the Nuremberg trials, right. right? That we had the prosecution of former former Nazi leaders for war crimes. And at that point, Hitler had committed suicide along with another a, a number of other leaders, right? Mm -hmm. And so, but at the same time, that was still an incredibly important process um, for all kinds of reasons. And part of also just making sense of what had happened and coming up with a comprehensive history of, of the war and of the crimes and having it all be documented for posterity, right? Um, so right now, their evidence is being collected. Right now, the ICC has a, a warrant out for Putin's arrest um, and also for the arrest of Putin's um, commissioner for the affairs of children. Um, mm. But what would it take for them, for there to be a trial, right? For them to be arrested, it will either take a Ukrainian victory, right? Which mm -hmm. is, is something that, that we're hoping for, mm -hmm. um, or something to change within Russia itself. Uh, mm -hmm. So that's that kind of trial of Russia's leaders is not going to happen right away. At the same time, it's, it's incredibly important that this effort be taken to 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 get things in motion for such a time. How is it determined 
First, who does the prosecuting, if it's the International Criminal Court or some other entity, and against whom? Um, are some war crimes being prosecuted against individual soldiers, but others against the country as a whole or its leadership? Um, how are those things sorted out? Yeah, so... So Ukraine itself, um, the Ukrainian Prosecutor General's Office, again, it's launched an initiative to prosecute war crimes, and those are crimes committed by Russian soldiers. And so that's a big effort that's already underway. In terms of crimes against humanity, that's that's something that Ukraine can do as well, but that's also something that the ICC is collecting evidence to do, the International Criminal Court, right, mm -hmm. um, to, to prosecute crimes against humanity. It's collecting evidence to prosecute war crimes. It's also collecting evidence to prosecute the crime of genocide. The thing that the International Criminal Court cannot do is it cannot prosecute Russia's leaders for waging a war of aggression. And that has to do with the statute of the ICC and the way that it's framed. So in order for there to be a trial of Putin for launching an illegal war, there needs to be a separate kind of tribunal. And there's been all kinds of discussion right now about what that tribunal might look like. Would it be a hybrid tribunal that would be based in Ukraine but would have an internationalized court? That's mm -hmm. one of the proposals on the table. Zelensky is, is opposed to this because he sees this as not having the same legitimacy as a more international tribunal that would have the support and approval of the United Nations. So there, there are all kinds of discussions on the table. And some people say, well, do we even really need this separate court to try the war of aggression, where maybe at some point there will be a trial of Putin for war crimes and crimes against humanity, maybe even for genocide. But I think that it's, it is absolutely essential um, to remember that this war itself is an illegal war. The invasion of Ukraine was illegal, and that all of these other crimes came about as a result of that first illegal act. So for me, I think it's critical, no matter what that court looks like, for us to recognize that waging a war of aggression, what at the Nuremberg trials was called crimes against peace, that this is an illegal act. And um, I think that's important actually for all kinds of reasons, um, some of which is when sometimes people talk about some kind of a negotiated settlement, right, some kind of a peace settlement. I think we need to recognize that, that Putin's a war criminal, right? and that the war itself is an illegal war. And so what kind of settlement are we talking about then in that case? The, the, this fact of him being a war criminal and the, the war itself being illegal is something that has to be part of any kind of discussion about what the future is going to look like. Yeah, and I hadn't thought about the difference between those two, sort of the, the micro and the macro. It's very clear when unarmed citizens are being killed or there's, there's sexual assault or there's other crimes, these things are they're discernible. We can we can see that and we have evidence of that. It must be, in my uninformed view, and I'd like your opinion on this, it must be a little murkier trying to prosecute against an illegal war. In other words, are there legitimate reasons to start a war and and other reasons that are not? Or how does that get sorted out? Yeah, I mean, in international law in general, waging a war of aggression, according to the United Nations Charter, right, mm. invading another country is an illegal act. Mm. 
Um, and so it's, that's actually very simple. The, the question is whether or not you can prosecute a leader who is still in power or whether that leader has immunity. Mm. So that's one of the questions. Then with the ICC, it becomes murkier because of how the International Criminal Court was set up. And a number of states, including the United States and, this, and Russia and China and Great Britain, a number of states just decided that they didn't like the idea of including aggression as one of the crimes that fell within the statute because of concerns about their own country's soldiers or leaders or generals, mm. right, being prosecuted. Um, aggression is typically a, a leadership crime the way that it's defined. And so, um, and of course, the United States and, and a whole number of states don't belong to the ICC. So that's why we can get into, it's really complicated in, in terms of, again, thinking about what the ICC can and can't do, but it cannot prosecute aggression. That does not mean that aggression is not a crime. Aggression right. is recognized as a crime. Okay. And again, that was not always the case, but that was one of the results of the Second World War and, and the Nuremberg trials. Um, by the end of the trials, it was recognized, like fully recognized that waging a war of aggression, an illegal war, a predatory war, was an illegal act for which leaders could be held accountable. So the United States is not part of the ICC? The United States is not part of the ICC. That's, yeah, it's, that's... It's become a complicated question. Are you optimistic about the outcome of these attempts to prosecute uh, for war crimes in in the Russian war? Oh, it's such a hard question because so much has to happen first. I'm I'm glad that this major effort is happening to collect evidence. I'm glad that a major effort is happening to call out what's happening as criminal, to talk about genocide, to talk about the fact that it's an illegal war. It's absolutely essential to have this conversation. Mm -hmm. But again, Ukraine has to win the war or there needs to be a different government in Russia, right? right. Things, something has to shift and change. I think that Ukraine is, is doing an excellent job of collecting evidence to have cases against individual soldiers, and mm -hmm. that will be an ongoing effort. And it's heartening to see the International Criminal Court, the ICC, taking on such a strong leadership role as well, right? Yeah. And again, so many organizations have come together in this effort to document what's happening. But it's, it's hard too, it's frustrating that we're documenting everything that's happening but we're still watching yeah. right, what's happening. The war is still happening. Yeah. Lives are being lost. Um, cultural treasures are being destroyed. Children have been kidnapped. Mm. It's, it's terrible. Mm. And so that's where we're at in, in this moment. So mm -hmm. kind of living with the reality of what's happening and, and trying to to plan for some kind of justice in the future. There has to be some kind of justice in the future. There has to be some kind of reparations in the future. There has to be some kind of an accounting in the future. Mm -hmm. It's important for Ukraine. I think it's also important for Russia. Yeah. Because in Russia right now, there's so much disinformation about yeah. what's happening that for there to be an actual record of the brutality of the war, mm -hmm. of how it's being waged, uh, and a record of the Putin's intentions with the war, for mm -hmm. that to somehow be put together to come out to correct that narrative that was incredibly important after the Second World War mm -hmm. as part of a process of denazification. Mm -hmm. I think that there's going to 
we'll see what happens in the future. But for Russia itself to to come out of this, right? Okay, there yeah. will need to be some kind of a reckoning as well. Yeah, agreed. Is there anything that you feel is important to talk about, but perhaps I didn't ask the right question for? No, I, mean, I think these are the big questions, okay. right? The, the yeah. big questions about, again, collecting information, about keeping our attention on what's happening. Mm-hmm. I think that there has been, uh, sometimes when you read people coming, people have different opinions about you know the reasons for the war or Ukrainian history or this and that, right? Putin at the beginning, um, had this whole historical treatise talking about the common roots of Russians and Ukraine. And, and sometimes there are these long discussions. Historians are sometimes asked to talk about Ukrainian-Russian relations and that history. And I'm actually glad you didn't ask me to talk about that in terms of the war, because I think that doesn't matter. It's irrelevant, right? It's absolutely irrelevant, the long history of Russian-Ukrainian relations. Ukraine was an independent, sovereign state that mm-hmm. Russia illegally invaded. In terms of Russian-Ukrainian relations, that's almost all we need to know, mm-hmm. right, in, in order to kind of understand and make sense of this present moment. So mm-hmm. I think kind of that's that's where we're at with, with that. Okay, great. Yeah. And just, just one more question. When you're not involved in this topic, who who are you? What you immerse yourself in this really, really heavy topic. Do you have hobbies or interests that give you a nice break from this? And if so, would you like to tell us what those would be? Sure. Well, I'll just say that, first of all, I, I, I love that I get to be a historian, right? My job, because my job, in part, it's doing this, kinds of re- this kind of research, and in part, it's writing. It's also teaching, mm-hmm. and I love to teach. And, and so I teach not just about war crimes, but about Russian history as a whole. Mm-hmm. And I, I get to teach about Russian-American relations as a whole and to, to focus on all kinds of interesting topics. Um, but also, in addition to being a historian, you know, I'm, I'm a parent of teenagers and, you know, a, and a partner and, um, and yeah, and, and I like to, you know, garden a little bit and take long walks and, um, yeah, just just enjoy Madison. Terrific. Yeah, I yeah. I totally agree. Yeah, yeah getting yeah. outside is great, yeah. especially now. Yeah. Uh, Fran, thank you so much. I have learned a lot uh, through this. You've really clarified a lot of things that were uh, just you know completely confusing to me. This conversation was very clarifying. Thank you. Well, thanks for having me today. It was a pleasure. You've been listening to Badger Talks Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Please browse our previous episodes for other topics that may be of interest to you. Badger Talks Podcast is a creation of UW Connects and produced at Audio for the Arts Recording Studios in Madison, Wisconsin. Our music is composed by Bill Purdy and performed by the UW Marching Band. I'm Buzz Kemper. Thank you for listening. Thank you.